Well, finally, today we are going to be concluding our series, The Sabbath and the Mark of God. And today is going to be somewhat uh, more of a reiteration, if you will, uh, simply because it's important for me to leave this series on a particular note. I want to leave you with a particular thought, uh, perhaps uh, the most fundamental thought of all in regard to the Shabbat. And what is that thought? Well, that thought is simply the reality the spiritual truth, the deep spiritual connection between Yeshua and the Shabbat, okay? I mean, ultimately, the only way that we can understand what the Sabbath is and the truth of it, its beauty, its splendor, there's no other way. It's through Yeshua alone. You know, as we looked at, really, you know, as we went through this, this series, we looked at the perception of the majority of modern-day Christianity in regard to the Shabbat. And the reality is that much of the church simply doesn't see the Shabbat as being relevant for today. They don't. I mean, this is obvious. This is why they don't keep it. And I want you to add two and two together. They're not keeping it because they don't see that it's relevant. And see, in in that frame of mind, they're looking at Christ and everything centered around Christ as they should. And anything that pertains to Christ... Well, that's relevant. If they see something that does not pertain to Christ, it gets cast along the side. Well, and I agree with that. Everything that in our life that is built upon our hope, our salvation, everything is in Yeshua. Period. And all the wonderful things that are attributed to these are the things we cling on. The problem is, is they don't see the Sabbath as being, having anything to do with Christ. When you think about it. This, is comes, this comes down, all comes down to relevance. I mean, you break this down. Well, today, we're going we're gonna to look at this, and I'm going to show you just how relevant it is, especially to you Christians that never had this connection. And I'm going to tell you personally, for me, the only reason I keep Shabbat, and this is my testimony, the only reason I keep it today is was because of my pursuit of going after Yeshua with all my heart, soul, and strength. Actually coming to a place in my life where I said, no, I will actually walk out this whole concept of picking up his, uh, p- uh, my cross and following him. See, when I did that, then all of a sudden something that wasn't relevant at all, which my upbringing in a traditional Christian home, the Shabbat was never relevant. All of a sudden, in my pursuit after him and knowing who he is, and listen to me carefully, knowing who he is and what he has done, all of a sudden, my eyes were opened. Then it became very relevant as I, begot, as I, as I got to know Yeshua better and better. With that said, if I were to title today's message, and, and I have, I would call it, In the Beginning... In the beginning, because it's at the beginning that we find just how relevant the Sabbath is. It's in the beginning that we discover who Yeshua is and what it is that he has done. And to help you understand this, I just want to get get back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1. This is what we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I want to stop here and highlight this. In Hebrew, it's actually Elohim. This term used for God is Elohim. Now, why is this important? 
Well, this is, this is critically important because the term itself is actually plural. It's plural. The im at the end, the yod and the mem, or mem sofi, indicates plurality. You, you, once you start to learn Hebrew, you could take a word like yelid, which is boy, and to turn it into plural boys, you would say yeladim. So anytime you hear an im, it's in the masculine, it is plural. The ot would be the feminine version of the plurality. This is vitally important. That we see that this is actual plural. And actually there's a Latin term for this. This is called the pluralis majestatus. Meaning plural of majesty. The plural of majesty. And so what we find, and this is what's so amazing. We don't have to wait to get to the New Testament. To actually have this beautiful revelation of Yeshua. Yeshua is revealed in the very first verse of the Bible. And all you have to do, and this is not a coincidence, all you have to do is go three words in. You study the Bible, you realize that three is is a very, very special number. Yeshua rose on the third day. As we get in, the very third word in the Hebrew, Bereshit, Barah, Elohim. Elohim is the third word. Right there on that third word, we see the presence and the revelation of Yeshua. Very, very powerful. But I want you to think about this. This is not just the revelation of seeing Yeshua Chad with his father, being one with his father, this great mystery, but it's in the context of creating And I'm going somewhere with this, so pay close attention. The context of Elohim, this plural, this Hebrew plural, is in the context of actually going forth and creating. Now this gets really interesting because as you you continue to read and you start to look at Genesis, you go on in Genesis 1, it actually says, let us. And you read in the Hebrew, it is plural. Let us make man in our image. Plural. You continue after the fall of man. And then the Lord comes forth and says, oh no, man has become like one of us in Genesis 3. Us, plural. And go further ahead yet still in Genesis 11 when the Lord needs to come down because the, the, the Tower of Babel is being constructed. He says, let us go down and confuse or confound their language. And so at creation... We have this. We have, in the very first verse of the Bible, we have the Father perfectly unified in perfect harmony, completely in the Hebrew, Chad, with his son, Yeshua. I mean, absolutely incredible. Yeshua is being presented in Genesis 1-1, literally, as the instrument of creation. And I think it's important to point out here that what I'm sharing with you is not far-fetched. This is, I did not create this ideology in my own head. I'm just simply sharing with you the reality. I'm not the only one that looks at it this way. We actually find as we get to the New Testament in the Gospel of John, John himself literally saw this for what it was. And this is what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, John is very clever in his writing technique here, and how he chose to open up this gospel. Because if you look at it in the Greek, it's actually anarche. Okay? When you go to the Greek Septuagint, the Hebrew translation of the Bible, 
The very first words are right there. Anarche. What do they mean? They mean in the beginning. They mean exactly what we got here on the screen. What is John doing? John is taking you back to Genesis 1.1. It's a parallel. He's mirroring Genesis 1.1. This is so powerful. And what he's saying is he's saying, I have a revelation for you. Go back to creation. Go back to Elohim. Go back to Genesis 1.1. And let me share with you what's really there. And what's there, he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And you should let that sink in. He was Elohim. The word was Elohim. Extremely powerful concept here. Now, going back to our Genesis account of creation. Continuing on, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the spirit of Elohim was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this has always fascinated me. Here we have Elohim. We know is the Father and the Son perfectly united together. And what do we see in the very next verse? We have the presence of Elohim's spirit. And the spirit is hovering over the waters. This is so absolutely powerful because we have the Godhead. The Godhead complete form. And it gets extremely interesting as we continue. Going on to verse 3. And this is what we read. Then God said... What what did John say? Remember, he said, in the beginning was the word. And here's the first presence uh, where we see God. What is he doing? Speaking the word. The word is coming out. And what does the word say? It says, let there be light. And what I love about this is the power of God. The power of God is established from the get-go. He says, let there be light. What happened? And there was light. God merely speaks things, and they happen. Now, this gets really, really interesting when you realize, well, wait a second. Did he create the sun and the moon and the stars And the first day? Was this the first thing? He didn't. So think about this. Here he said, let there be light, and there was light, but there's no sun. There's no moon. There's no stars. What is this light? Well, here's what's really amazing. As we come to John chapter 8, verse 12, Yeshua says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so right away, I mean, Yeshua is filled. His presence is filled in Genesis, in this creation story. It is unbelievable. He was the, the revelation. What happened was Elohim revealed, the father revealed the son. The world got to experience the light of the son. He revealed his glory. That's who Yeshua is. It was power. And think about when you read the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians, he actually says, Yeshua is the wisdom and the power of God. That's who he is, the wisdom and the power. And so this is amazing. This, this whole, this whole uh, what's going on here in creation. Let there be light. There was light. Now, this gets really interesting. When I, I'm going to take you to Revelation. Because here you have Genesis Genesis 1, and this light is revealed, but it's not the sun, moon, or stars. Well, we know it to be Yeshua. Well, as we come to Revelation, this is what we read. Revelation 21, 23. The city, meaning New Jerusalem, we're talking about the age to come. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminates it. What is it? The Lamb is its light. This is the light. It's the light of the world. 
His light has the ability to shine in power, in glory, in splendor. And we could even take this a step further. And that, what does the Lord say? What does God do in in verse 4? We look at verse 4 here, and I'll highlight it. The light, it divided the light from the darkness. So God divides the light from the darkness. So the revelation of the light comes in to the world, and he divides it. He divides the darkness from the light. Now that's amazing to me because in John 3 we read this. And this is Yeshua. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so Yeshua who says, I am the light of the world. He comes in and what happens? He divides the light from the darkness. Those who are of the light get separated from those who are of the darkness. And you think about this, uh, going to John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And you you go to Proverbs uh, 29, um, the unjust man is an abomination to the righteous and he who is upright in his ways is an abomination to the wicked. Matthew 10. Right, when Yeshua, he came out, he goes, you don't think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What was he doing? Dividing son from father, mother from daughter. Dividing light from darkness. This is who Yeshua was, and this is what we're seeing in creation. It's powerful. Now, taking you back to John's prologue, continuing on in verse 2, and just kind of going back and forth, paralleling these two. In John 2, he goes on, he says, he, meaning Yeshua, the word is what he's referring to. The word was in the beginning with God, with Elohim. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So here, John, in pun intended, John brings to light the fact that the only way anything was created, everything that we see today, everything that we read about that was being made, that was only made through Yeshua. And this is absolutely fascinating because this is the entirety of the New Testament's testimony. I mean, John's not alone with this. He's not crazy. We find the writer of Hebrews believes the same thing. Elohim, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers uh, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now listen, through whom also he made the world's. And so this is the constant testimony. If we go to the Apostle Paul, he says the same thing. For by him, meaning Yeshua, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Think about that. That's not even just the things that are, that are visible, but invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now this is critical. Paul is so clever. He doesn't give you any wiggle room whatsoever to wiggle out of who Yeshua really is and what he has done. And what do I mean by that? He says all things were created through him, but he doesn't stop there. He's very careful. These last two words are critical for him. It's not just things that were made through him, but they were made for him. Why is that such a big deal to me? Because when I go to the Tanakh, when I read the Old Testament, what I am told is that all things were made for the Tetragrammaton, Yehovah. Let me show you in Proverbs 16. 
The Lord, Yehovah, has made all, what? For himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. We need to start pondering who Yeshua is right now. Because I go to the Old Testament, I go to the Tanakh, and I find out that all things were made for Yehovah. And now I jumped into the New Testament, and the revelation is, no, all things were made for Yeshua. And we could do, we could play, we could banter back and forth all day long. Isaiah 45, right? Isaiah 45 tells us that every knee is going to bow to Yehovah. But then I go to Philippians 2, and I discover that every knee is going to bow to Yeshua. And then you talk about uh, Joel 2.32. All who call upon the name of the Lord, Yehovah, will be saved. You go see that very passage quoted in Romans 10, and the name used is Yeshua. Whoever confesses Yeshua with their mouth and believes in their heart. That's what they're going to be saved. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. I could tell you about Isaiah 44, where specifically Yehovah says, I am the first and I am the last. We'll now go to Revelation. And what do we see? The last chapter in the book. Specifically, Yeshua comes out and says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. You just think about these concepts. Uh, we could go on. Uh, Jeremiah 17. In, in Jeremiah 17, he, Yehovah says, I search the hearts and the minds of the people. Go to Revelation 2. Yeshua, in the first person, says, I am the one who searched the minds and the hearts of the people. We need to really ponder who Yeshua is scripturally. Not according to what we want him to be, or what we don't want him to be, but who he is. And this is why we have passages like this in Proverbs 30. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? I want you to understand, this is prophecy. This is, this is one of the most powerful prophetic passages in all of the Tanakh regarding Yeshua. Because he is the only one who has descended and ascended. He's the one. In fact, look at John chapter 6. He is the bread from heaven. Whoever comes to him will have everlasting life. Whoever eats that bread will live for all eternity. And even in that same chapter, he literally says, what is it if the Son of Man ascends? He is going to ascend to where he was before. He was already there. He descended and now was ascending. And we find multiple passages about him descending and ascending. I mean, extremely, this is very, very powerful. So this is all about Yeshua, and this is really going to unfold as we continue. Who has gathered the wind into his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? It's interesting. When you go to Psalm 89, there you find that it is Yehovah. He has the power to steal, to still the seas. He calms them when they rise up. Well, you go to Matthew 8 and read the story. It is Yeshua who commands the winds and the sea. He commands them and they listen to him. I mean, that's extremely powerful. And we continue on. Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know. I mean, here you have Elohim. You have the father working with his son in perfect unity as a Cha. This is why Yeshua says, I and my father are a Chad. We're one. It's just like this. And so it asks the question at the end, and, and, and because it's, it's provoking something. What is this last statement doing? What is his son's name if you know? It's provoking confession. 
The confession of the name of Yeshua. Do we know his? Yes, we do. Fortunately for us, we know the name of the son. His name is Yeshua. Yeshua of Nazareth. And through him, we know that all things have been established. Yeshua was the very instrument of creation. He's the word that brought forth all things into existence. This is why John, if you, I didn't put it up here, but you go back to his prologue and John 1.14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And actually that word was called by a name, Emmanuel, God with us, Elohim with us. Very, very powerful. So, when we read the Genesis account of creation in Genesis 1.1, where it says, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. We now understand this is exactly how Apostle Paul understood it. We now know what John knows. That in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Extremely powerful. And when the Word said... When that word went forth, there was light. He said, let there be light. Well, guess what? It happened. And when he said, let there be a firmament, it happened. And when he said, let there be sea creatures, it happened. And when he said, let let us make man in our image, guess what? It happened. I mean, this went forth in power. Let me get to the point I want to make. As we come to the completion of the Lord's creation, we read the following. In Genesis 1.31. Then Elohim saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Moving to verse uh, chapter 2, which is the next verse, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And what did he do? And he rested on the seventh day, meaning the Sabbath, from all his work, which he has done. So here, we're actually getting our first glimpse into the Shabbat. And the fact that the Lord himself rested on that day. He rested from creating, this is important, he rested from creating the heavens and the earth, of which we know that it was the Father working through the Son, right? Through Yeshua, to do all these things. Okay, with that, we move on to the next verse. Then Elohim blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Now when it says he blessed it, he anointed it and sanctified it, this day has been made holy. The day that we are standing on right now, that we're living and breathing this day, this is a holy, this was made holy at the beginning of creation. He set it apart from the rest of the week, from the rest of the six days. It is unique, it is special. Now here's what I found really interesting about this passage and what I appreciate so much. It would have been enough if he just said, yep, I blessed it and I sanctified it and there's nothing more to say. But he doesn't do that. He actually gives us the reason why. And this is, this is pinnacle. Why he blessed it, why it's sanctified as we go on. Because in it, he rested from all his work, which Elohim had created and made. Now it's interesting. So the Lord does, Elohim does all this creation. He takes the Sabbath to literally rest. But what is he doing? When we actually read the passage, he's looking back on his creation. He's acknowledging what his hand, what his word has accomplished. He saw that it's good. And he is sitting back acknowledging himself. He's literally created the day to be holy 
for his own glory. I mean, this is what is actually happening, where he takes the time to reflect on what he has done. He has created all things. Very, very powerful. Now, if we come to the conclusion that the Father has created all things through Yeshua, and that nothing that was made was made except through him, then we must also, and listen to me carefully, we must also concede that it was Yeshua who blessed and sanctified the Shabbat, right? And see, when you understand this, it, this dramatically changes your whole perspective, right? It's, 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 it's revelatory. It changes your whole perspective on the relevancy of the Shabbat to Yeshua as Lord, right? And this is what I mean when, you know, this is what I meant when I said, when you understand who Yeshua is, i.e. God, Elohim, and what he has done, created the heavens and the earth, then you really begin to look at the Shabbat in a whole new light. It's no longer simply a day that I take for myself, or that's about me. Because it isn't about me. The more you study, it's about him. It's about who he is, Yeshua, and what he has done. Very, very powerful. It's about identifying. This Shabbat is about identifying with our creator, creator of heaven and earth, and acknowledging that through Yeshua, the Shabbat was declared holy. See, because remember, Shabbat is a part of creation. There wasn't just six days in creation. There was seven days in creation. Shabbat is a significant part of creation. And so when we observe Shabbat, we're actually, and we need to understand this, we're actually confessing Yeshua as the Lord of heaven and earth. And you're acknowledging what Yeshua, Yeshua has deemed holy. I want to take you to Paul's epistle to Titus. And he says, to the pure, all things are pure. Now, I want to be very clear. The context, and this will bear out, but the context of what he's saying, he's saying, to the pure, all things are pure. In other words, to those who are holy, to those who fear God, the things that God says are holy, they identify with. It resonates with them. They're relevant. Okay? The pure things of God's word are relevant to the believer, and they identify with them. So to the pure, all things are pure. But then he goes on, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In the context that even when God says something is holy, the, the defiled and unbelieving will come and say, well, not to me. It's not relevant to them. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. In verse 16, they profess to know God. This is what's scary about this passage. These are the people that are saying, oh, no, no, I confess Yeshua. He's my Lord. And it makes you think of, of Luke 6. When it's, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do the things that I say? Right? And so here he says, they profess to know God, but in works, their actions, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The bottom line here is that when you break this all down and you really study out the Shabbat and, and, and how the Bible describes it, what it means, uh, not to you, but w- what it means to Yeshua. Uh, and, and when you study out its relationship to Yeshua and Yeshua's relationship to creation, then you discover very simply the Sabbath. Yes, it's about Yeshua, but it's, it's more. It's in the context of it's all about the worship of Yeshua. The worship of the one who created heaven and earth. The father working through the son. 
Okay? It is all about worship where we identify God as the one true God. The living God. And you know what's interesting is even the Catholic Church has picked up on this. They've read the story of creation. Their scholars have read the story of creation. And what they come away with is exactly what I just said. Let me put it up on the screen for you. Creation, this is out of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Creation was fashioned with the view to the Sabbath. And therefore, what? For the worship and adoration of God. So they read the creation account. They see these six days. They see what's recorded as you get into Genesis 2. And they walk away with this. That the whole point of the Sabbath, with the, cre- the creation was all fashioned with the view to the Shabbat. And the Shabbat, the crescendo, was established for the worship of the Most High God. I mean, that's amazing. For the worship and adoration of God. And of course, I agree. There's no question. And then they say worship is inscribed in the order of creation. Yes, it is. And you think about the relevancy of that. That we are supposed to be disciples, worshipers of Yeshua. Who, remember, was involved in creating all things. Nothing was made without him. It's all about worship. The Shabbat, the more you start to study it, I promise you, it looks really relevant to a believer in Yeshua. In Psalms 95, I love this psalm. Oh, come. It's a calling. Come. Come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. It's interesting, right? It's Yehovah Oseinu. Yehovah Oseinu, the Lord, our maker. This is one of my favorite titles. And you find it all over the place uh, where the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. I mean, this is what makes God God. The fact that he created everything. It's that simple. By very definition, what makes God God is that he created everything and therefore everything he created is subservient to him. The very definition of God, right? And we are called, our calling is to come and kneel before our maker. He is the potter, we are the clay. Well, let me add this. When you look at the Shabbat, that is exactly what we are called to do. We're called to do this. And I want to take you to the Torah. I want to take you to Vayikra 23 verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feast. This is a moed or people will say moedim. These are the feast of the Lord. A feast of the Lord, a moed, is in fact an appointment. It's an appointment, okay? Now, what's interesting is, is the very first moed, or the very first appointment that is mentioned in this passage in Leviticus 23 is the Shabbat. And this is what we read. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, a mikra kodesh. It's a holy convocation. And what is a mikra kodesh? It's a sacred assembly, it's a holy assembly. In fact, when you actually go to the root word right here, this, this mikra, the root word is kara. Kara is a calling out. You're being called out. You're being called. You're being summoned. Your presence is required. I mean, that's what this mikra, and it's a holy calling. This is not a secular calling. This is not a generic calling. It is a holy calling. Hence the kodesh, right? 
So this is all like So the Shabbat is a time where Yeshua is actually calling his disciples, come before me, my disciples, present yourselves before me. I'm to be worshipped. He is asking to be worshipped. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's Yehovah, a saint. The Lord our creator being Echad with his father. All right? The only question is, is are you willing to answer that calling? I mean... If, if, you know, I understand traditions are strong, and, and uh, we've never seen the relevancy. You may have not seen the relevancy of the Shabbat. But you start getting into this stuff, and I encourage you to do that if you haven't. You start to dig into this stuff, and it's frightening. It's powerful. It's enlightening. And you start to learn more and more about the Shabbat. It is so beautiful because of Yeshua. The beauty that I behold of the Shabbat isn't in of itself. It's not about establishing your own righteousness. It is about him. He is the one who drew me. And it is my yearning to worship him, especially when he's called me to do it on this specific day. And so it takes on a, a whole new meaning, if you will. Amen? Now, I want to take you to the book of Ezekiel because I want to expound. I want to build upon this calling that was literally ordained at creation. And show you exactly why the Lord didn't just create the Sabbath or why he didn't just make it for himself. He made it for us. And this is critical that we, that we recognize this. And uh, as we come to Ezekiel 12, we're actually told why he gave it to us. Which I, again, appreciate. As we go to Exodus 20.12, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign. And when you look at what this sign is, is actually a, 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 a signal, a distinguishing mark. Now, what's interesting is, is this is the very word that's used when it says the Lord put a mark on Cain. This is the word that's used. He put an oat. He put a mark on Cain. It's the same word that's used for the rainbow. When the Lord cast the rainbow in the clouds, he said that I will give you a sign. And here's the sign. Well, it was an oat. And now, in regard to the Shabbat, here we're seeing that the Lord has given his people. I gave them my Sabbath, not our Sabbath. He gives them his Sabbath as a mark. They are a mark. They're an oat between them and me. Now, here's why. That they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. That they might know that I am the Lord. Think about this. So we are supposed to be picking up on the fact, the whole purpose of why he's given us the Sabbath, so that we identify with the fact that he has sanctified He's made us holy. In fact, let me take it a step further. If you look at the word that's used, that they might know, it is the Hebrew yada, to recognize, admit, acknowledge, confess. That's what it is. I gave them my Sabbath. That they might confess that I am the one who sanctifies them. Well, you look throughout the New Testament, we discover there is one who sanctifies. It is Yeshua. And Yeshua is involved from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation. He is the one who sanctifies us. And all this time that the New Testament spends on getting us to confess Yeshua. I mean, my goodness, the Shabbat is all about that. That's exactly what it was designed for. That's why he gave it to us, to confess Yeshua as the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who sets us apart. I mean, this is powerful. Now, let me just jump ahead, because it's not just about identifying. He's the one who sanctifies us. 
The few verses ahead just get cuts right to the chase even further. Hallow my Sabbaths. Okay, so it's not a matter of just giving them. I mean, you don't do anything with it. You identify them as holy. To the pure, all things are pure. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign, an oath between me and you, that you may know, that's the same Hebrew word, yada, that I am the Lord your God. Now think about that. He gave the Sabbath for the purpose that we are to confess that he is Lord. It's not just about that we identify that he has sanctified us. It's about that he is Lord. Yeshua is Lord. You know, for me to embrace the Shabbat is to confess Yeshua. That's what it is. I want to close today by taking you to the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to take you, there are two recordings of the Ten Commandments. The first Decalogue is recorded in Exodus 20. The second is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 5. All right? I want to take you back to Deuteronomy 20. This is something we've covered pretty extensively throughout the series. But it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now you'll notice I highlighted this right here, this Hebrew word here. It corresponds to this. Remember, it's Zachor in the Hebrew. Zachor et Yom HaShabbat Lakadashot. Zahor means to do just that, to remember, but I want to be very clear on something. It is only in the context of this, what's being referred to is in the context of action. It's not you sitting in a chair and remember, oh yeah, I remember that, you know, you know, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath holy. That was a really good thought. I'm going to go out to the mall. And the concept is, is it's a concept of action. Zahor is an action and the context bears it out. Remember the Sabbath day, here's the action, to keep it holy. Now, what's interesting is you can find other times that Zechor is used, like Genesis 19, uh, with Abraham. And it literally says, and God remembered Abraham. But what that meant is when it says, God Zechor, Abraham, mean God moved. It was a call to action. Because Abraham had this discussion, would you really destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he would not do that. So the Lord was moved to action. He sent the angels to go grab Lot and pull him out. Powerful. Really powerful. Uh, again, Genesis 30, somewhere around there. Rachel. This is God remembered Rachel. And what happened to Rachel? She conceived. The Zahor. And so, even more interesting, it was just to reiterate what we talked about earlier, not only are we to Zahor, it's called action, but do you know that this is the only commandment out of the Ten Commandments that actually begin with Zahor? None of the other Ten Commandments begin with Zahor. Why, why is it not important that I remember to honor my mother and father? Why is it not important to remember to not take the name of the Lord's, the Lord's name in vain? I mean, shouldn't I remember to do those things? And yet, this is the only commandment that begins with remember. And the answer to that, why, why would you do that? It's very simple. It's prophetic. It is prophecy. It's a prophetic warning. The Lord knew what would happen to the Shabbat. He knew what was coming. If I had a nickel for every time I have talked to a believer that has come to me and told me that, well, Daniel, you know, we'll keep the other nine commandments. We don't keep the tenth one. We don't, we don't keep the Shabbat, the fourth commandment. We don't keep that because it's not mentioned in the New Testament. But all the other nine are mentioned there. I mean, that is mind-blowing. The fact that they'll keep the rest of the nine. They'll even say the nine are binding, but not this one. The only one that begins with Zohar. Remember. Remember this day. 
You cannot make that stuff up. And so, I mean, you look at what the reality of what's going on, and most Christians will, will, will absolutely, fundamentally tell you they will stand by the nine commandments. This scares me. I mean, that scares me. When you can see that there's the prophetic warning, and it's the very one that people are rejecting today. The Lord knew what would happen. Now, what I want to do is I want to put up Deuteronomy 5. And I want to parallel this because that's the second Decalogue, and we're going to look at the same commandment. The only thing about Deuteronomy 5 is, and I love putting them up together, it's different. The wording's different. And, uh, you know, the rabbis even caught on to this thing. The rabbis have noticed all the variations and difference. And so before I show you the different rendering, if you will, I want to read to you some commentary from Ibn Ezra. It's really good commentary. It'll kind of set the stage. The prophets do not preserve the exact wording when they repeat something. And man, if you're a textual critic and you really get to the components of studying the Bible, this passage that I'm putting on here is going to benefit you greatly as a good starting point that you understand. Because there are, if we go and we look at the history of manuscripts, there are many, many variations. Just there is no one copy of the Bible. I want to be clear on that. And maybe I'll teach on that someday. But, um, but this, this will be very powerful for you. The prophets do not preserve the exact uh, wording when they repeat something. They only preserve its substance, for that is what's important. There are many other such instances and many other additions and omissions in the second version of the Decalogue. The intelligent person will understand why this is so. And so, Ezra recognized, along with all the other rabbis, they recognized that, you know, the rendering of Deuteronomy 5 is different. There's different. There's actually additions in in this particular commandment in in, uh, the Shabbat. Well, I want to show it to you. And so, Exodus 20, verse 8 says, Remember, it's Zechor, the Sabbath day, but in Deuteronomy 5, it says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It doesn't say remember. It's Shemar. In the Hebrew. And shamar means to protect, to guard. Now, did God change the commandment from Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy 5? Well, obviously, the answer to that is no. As according to Ibn Ezra, the unintelligent person will understand what's going on here. There is a deeper comprehension of the Shabbat and what the Lord is asking of us. Number one, we are asked to remember to keep it holy, but not just that. Now we're commanded to guard it. And we have an excellent example. I'm not going to get into it because we already covered it. We have an excellent example in Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah posted guys at the gates of Jerusalem to protect the Sabbath. In fact, he threatened a man's life. That if he comes and he's going to defile the Sabbath, he's going to lay hands on him. And so I wanted to close with this because, you know, the reality is when we look at this, this is the calling. It's very simple. The commandment's not that hard. It's not intimidating. The Lord is crying out, remember, don't forget, remember to keep it holy. And it, it's, it's so important that it's not, this is not just for Christians that don't know. This is for us because we become complacent. And the call is for us as well. Remember to keep it holy. Because how you don't want to fall into complacency that you're like, oh, this is just another day. And, you know, I've been doing this for years. I've been keeping the Shabbat for years. And, uh, you know, this is something we got to fight, right? 
This is something we got to fight. We need to guard it. We need to guard our homes on the Shabbat. And nothing is going to come into the home. And we're, you know, there is no whatever. You know, I don't let my girls play video games or anything like that. It's, it's holy. And so we, we got to keep it holy. We need to guard it. We need to protect it. It's for our own sake. He, he does this. And so, you know, we as Christians, whatever you want to call yourself, you want to call yourself Christian, you want to call yourself a messianic, just in general, we as believers in Yeshua, we are called to keep the Shabbat holy. Amen. So in conclusion, let us serve the creator of heaven and earth. Let us as believers in Yeshua observe the Shabbat according to his will, according for his glory, and recognize that Yeshua took part in creation and understand that all things were made through him and for him. And when you understand that reality that he blessed it, he sanctified it, and that we understand the reason why he gave it to us, that we might confess him as Lord, well, that becomes, that's a whole new perspective. That becomes really, really powerful. And that really puts into perspective this verse. For the Son of Man, Yeshua meant himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, I want to be clear. You will not find Moses, Elijah, King David, all these righteous, unbelievable men of God that God did miraculous things through. None of them walked around and said, yeah, I'm I'm Moses and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. None of them did because they couldn't. This title is reserved for one. To say you're the Lord of the Sabbath is to say that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. That you were there at creation, that all things were created through you and for you. And I'm going to say this again. I assure you, the Sabbath is no longer done away with than the fact that the Lord is no longer the Lord of the Sabbath. And that is a fact. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Shabbat is still there. Just as Yeshua is still there. With that said, let's rise and do our battle cry. Today... We will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. And we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray the prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, we can bring the music team back up. We're just going to close in prayer. Abba Father, we just give you praise and glory. We thank you for sending your son, the Messiah Yeshua, that we might have life. And there is hope in your son, Father. There is hope for the people that are broken, for the people that think that they're beyond saving. The people that think that you've done something so bad that it can't be possibly forgiven and that you would never want them to be in your kingdom. And Lord, we just remind the people that there's... Nothing can separate us from the love of Yeshua. And that there is forgiveness and there is hope in him. Lord Yeshua, we call upon you as the son of God, as the king of the Jews, 
as the righteous one, the holy one of Israel. And we ask for your mercy, Lord, at this time that we are living. We are living in exciting and strange, terrifying, dark times. I mean, there's so many, so many thoughts. There's so many emotions bouncing off of the walls in regard to what's happening, what's going on with your nation, how the world's responding, anti-Semitism, uh, Christians getting their heads literally chopped off. They're being uh, persecuted and maimed. And this stuff is just, it's, it's just, it's beyond. It's beyond anything that we could have conceived that we would live to see. The things that we are actually experiencing right now, the talk of dividing Jerusalem, biblical prophecy unfolding, Zechariah 14. Lord, we pray for your strength. And we, do, we continue to pray for it. Pour out your spirit. Let there be revival in this place. Build an army, raise an army of warriors who go out in love. They don't return evil for evil. They return good, even though that they've been wronged. That they love their enemies. They bless those who persecute them. They do good to those who hate them. Lord, we just pray for these kinds of hearts, Lord. We pray for healings in this community. For forgiveness of sins. For focus and vision. To stay focused on you. To not allow fears to persuade us to sway us in different directions to cause us to come off of the path or or the lust of the flesh to seduce us away from your righteousness lord and pray for that you create in us clean hearts renew a steadfast spirit restore your joy to our lives lord no matter what's going on that we can rejoice we can rejoice in what you have done, who you are, and what you have done for us. We just glorify your name, Lord. We lift high the name of Yeshua in this place. We confess it, and we believe that the Father has raised you from the grave to sit at his right hand. We thank you for everything that you have done for your sacrifice, Lord Yeshua. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.